are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. Boy, do we have an interesting show for you this week. So women's brains through menopause have been in the news recently. A study published in Scientific Reports where they actually did brain scans on women and men ages 40 through 65 found that, yes, our brains, women's brains, actually do change during perimenopause. There is a dip in gray and white matter and glucose metabolism. So your general function of your brain changes during this transition, and it's what many women experience as brain fog. For most women, this fog will clear post-menopause because the brain is what they call plastic. It makes adjustments and it rebounds, and the studies show that the brain actually did rebound, like the pictures looked post-menopause like they did pre-menopause for most women. For some women, those changes kind of continue, and this is an issue that's an area of continued study for obvious reasons. But the science is clear, the menopause transition affects our brains, and experts are still uncovering the hows and the whys. My guest this week, neuroscientist Dr. Sarah McKay, the author of The Women's Brain Book, is one of those experts. Interestingly, her book was the product of a smaller assignment, an article she was writing about brain fog. She thought it would be a simple assignment, that it was just aging ovaries and waning hormones. And what she ended up unearthing and finding was a far more complex story that resulted in this book. It was about how our brains experience these big transitions like menopause, and they are certainly impacted by our hormones, sometimes profoundly, but those hormones are part of a larger chorus that includes nature and nurture and culture and society and lifestyle and how our thoughts and emotions can have an impact on all of that. This has come up actually a lot on our show. In episode four, Happy Vaginas with Dr. Mary Jane Minkin, She talked about how one of the studies she published a few years back in the journal Menopause had found that societal impressions of aging can affect the severity of menopause symptoms. And as she told Reuters Health at the time, in societies where age is more revered and the older woman is the wiser and better woman, menopausal symptoms are significantly less bothersome. Where older is not better, Many women equate menopause with old age, and symptoms can be much more devastating. In episode 35, most recently with Dr. Jen Gunter, she told me that cognitive behavioral therapy, which works by training your brain to reframe certain situations, can help women deal with disruptive symptoms of menopause like hot flashes. And a 2019 study published in the journal Menopause found that women practicing cognitive behavioral therapy enjoyed significant improvements in hot flashes, depression, sleep disturbances, and sexual concerns. It goes on and on. In episode 20, Save Your Sleep with Dr. Sophie Bostock, she talked about how cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia 
can work wonders for helping women improve their sleep. In fact, a 2018 study found that it worked better for sleep improvement, especially with insomnia, than other interventions, including hormone and antidepressant therapy. So it has come up a lot. So your brain is a very complex and very adaptable organ. And working with it as it changes appears to be pretty important. And though hormone therapy can be a godsend for some, it's not necessarily the answer for all because it's not just your hormones doing the talking. In fact, Dr. McKay, towards the end of this one, gives a really interesting perspective on hormonal therapy and the brain and why our brain may or may not respond the same way to hormone therapy after a certain point. I'll be sure to put the notes to the Neuroscience Academy and where she works and to the Women's Brain book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness in the show notes so you can dig in more on this one. But it has been a fascinating conversation with her. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Before we get to it, just a quick reminder to come join us on our social media channels. We are at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. We have the private hit play, not pause Facebook channel where you can come in and join all sorts of conversation. We've got thousands of women in there now, and it's awesome. And if you want to deep dive into all things active menopausal living, come join us over at the Feisty Menopause membership, where we offer in-depth materials, expert webinars, and sponsor discounts. You can learn all about that at feistymenopause.com. If you want to hit me up with questions or suggestions for guests, I have the email hitplaynotpause at livefeisty.com. Finally, a thank you. I have to keep thanking you because we are getting continued so many wonderful reviews and ratings and each and every one of them just makes my heart swell. So thank you. It really, really is helping grow the show. The show is continuing to grow. It has not plateaued. I love you all. Thank you. So enough of me. Let's have a quick word from our generous and awesome sponsors and get on with the show. Women who ride bikes, and I am most certainly one of them, know that finding women's cycling clothing can be an exercise in frustration, right? And that's why I am so psyched that one of my favorite women-owned and operated clothing companies, Velarosa, has come on as a sponsor of Hit Play, Not Pause. Velarosa's kits feature bold, beautiful, colorful prints and patterns, and the collections, which I really love, are designed so you can mix and match the coordinating pieces to get more mileage out of your cycling wardrobe. Best of all, they fit like a dream. The chamois is super comfortable and perfectly placed. The yoga waistband hugs your midsection without digging in anywhere. And the leg bands are like 100% functional and flattering with no squeezy sausage leg effect that is a big nope for me. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, Velarosa's got you covered beautifully. And now, thanks to their sponsorship, Hit Play Not Pause listeners can get 15% off their first order at VelarosaCycling.com. Just enter the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's VelarosaCycling.com, the code HITPLAY for 15% off. So go get some sweet Velarosa cycling clothing today. 
Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you, it works. You know, I, I, I got the book online and I went through it and I love the intro because it starts right with something that comes up a lot, brain fog. And I love yeah. that you got this assignment and you thought, oh, it's going to be like super straightforward. You know, it's like hormones and aging. And then like all of a sudden and being a writer myself, I can really appreciate this, that all of a sudden it becomes this book because it becomes this other thing. You know, it, it becomes womanhood and nature and nurture and neurobiology Mm-hmm. And the intersection of what our hormones are doing with all these other factors in our life. And, you yeah. know, as I mentioned to you before, I really like that because the, the tagline of this show is, you know, so you can optimize your performance no matter what your hormones are doing, recognizing that there are other things in your life besides your hormones. Mm-hmm. And that said, I also like to acknowledge because I, I know that sometimes the audience then hears like, oh, then my hormones shouldn't be causing all this chaos. I should be able to, you know, do all this stuff. So I'd, I'd love to hear from you, you know, for women in this menopause transition, like how much of what they're experiencing cognitively mm-hmm. and psychologically, especially really does come down to hormonal fluctuation. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. I guess um, some of some some of the symptoms, for want of a better word, that women experience when they're going through perimenopause and perhaps the early years of menopause, when you know we know very clearly the role that hormones are playing in that. Other symptoms, maybe that is a bit more of a domino effect, or perhaps there's some aspect of, you know other aspects of health and well-being that are involved so the one that's most well established and perhaps the most common symptom that women experience is hot flashes or night sweats or some combination of the two but certainly there's there's certainly a very clear mechanism in play there whereby the fluctuating levels of hormones cause a reset in our 
thermostat in our brain. So in a, in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, we have a region that is involved with monitoring our body temperature and it's involved with thermoregulation and detecting when we're too hot and when we're too cold and then triggering various physiological responses like sweating or behavioural responses like taking your clothes off or putting more clothes on if you're warm, et cetera. Um, and, and it's very well established that the fluctuating levels of hormones through the menopause um, through that transition phase um, cause the narrowing of the thermostat. So the kind of the top level goes down and the bottom level goes up and we're more susceptible to hot or cold, whereby our body, our brain and our body react to very small changes in body temperature as if they were enormous changes. And that's very well established. And we know that if women choose to use hormone replacement therapies or hormone therapies um, to supplement the ovarian hormones through that phase of life, then that's a pretty good treatment for the hot flashes or hot flushes, night sweats, whatever you, whatever you choose to call them. So that, that pathway is very, very well established. Now, a lot of the knock-on effects that come from dysregulated thermoregulation impact sleep. And I think that this is probably a far less well-recognized link for many women. And most people are pretty familiar with the concept of when it gets dark at night, we have signaling from our brain, melatonin is released to tell our brain and our body that it's getting dark. Um, and then we start to feel sleepy and we head off to bed. Now, what women don't often know, and maybe we sort of start to get some hints of it as we're entering the menopause, that body temperature, thermoregulation and sleep are also very, very intimately entwined. And when our body, our core body temperature is a bit too high, or if there's, you know, perhaps there's some kind of heat wave or it's a really hot night or our room is overheated, it takes longer to get to sleep and we don't have as, as deep a sleep. Um, and that's because one of the roles of melatonin is to tell um, our body that it's time to cool down to get ready for sleep. And that cooling down, that, that shift from, from hot to cold, that actual delta, that the change in body temperature is a real strong signal to our body and our brains that it's time to go to sleep. Now, when that's disrupted slightly, even if we're not having hot flashes, even if we're not being woken up at night by night sweats, our sleep architecture is still disrupted. So we may feel like we've been asleep all night, but our, our deep sleep and our REM sleep, that architecture has been disrupted such that we then get a whole lot of knock-on effects the following day. You miss one night's sleep or you have one night of bad sleep, you understand what the effects are like the next day. If you start adding that up over weeks and months and years, it almost goes without saying that of course women are going to start suffering from brain fog and emotional dysregulation, just feeling grumpy and cranky and not being able to kind of cope as well as normal. So that perhaps medical, that I suppose um, neurobiological pathway is less well understood and less well recognized but is probably underlying a lot of the symptoms that women are experiencing so the fluctuations in hormones are causing dysregulation and thermoregulation are affecting sleep architecture and that makes it a whole lot harder to concentrate the next day and a whole lot harder to regulate your emotions the next day so that's perhaps where a lot of that is coming from with with the hormones sort of just being one little point in that whole big long chain and of course once you start it's a bit of a vicious cycle once you sort of start having problems with sleep worrying about it feeds into insomnia um, starting to feel emotional and anxious um, 
perhaps wondering why and what's going on, you know, that sort of starts to feed into itself as well. So mm-hmm. hormones are just kind of one little voice or one little kind of tipping point or, or you know, first domino, <laughs> which sort of starts a lot of these other 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 issues cascading. So so two questions. Where yeah. does where does cortisol fit into that picture? Where does stress fit into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, well, well, I've just been talking about what we, we the, the changes that we see going through menopause and we're talking about fluctuations in ovarian hormones. Right, and so, my understanding yeah. is that cortisol yeah. sort of gets disrupted yeah. in there and, as well. And cortisol is not an ovarian hormone, obviously. Cortisol right, right, is right. released as part of our, um, it's released from our adrenal glands and it's part of this whole big kind of um, brain body cycle, which enables us not, and I and I really don't like talking about Cortisol enables us to respond, or cortisol is a stress hormone. That's not really language that I like. I like to discuss because that kind of gives the impression that any release of cortisol or any sympathetic nervous system response um, is, is is all around a, a, a stressful event. I like to use the, the the terms threats, challenges, or opportunities because essentially, when our brain um, perceives a threat or a challenge or an opportunity. It involves our body responding in a way that is not kind of half asleep or not sitting and resting. It involves some kind of mobilization of our body to get up and move through the world and react and respond in a certain way. And that may be, you know, just in response to getting up in the morning. It may be, um, you know, one of your kids comes home from school suddenly is that's what happened to me earlier this morning. I had to kind of mobilize my body to get up and respond. And so part of that response is, nervous as as, as a a sympathetic nervous system which is a really quick rapid fire response and that causes um you know the the neural inputs to all kinds of organs and muscles throughout our body which kind of get us up and going and there's also the nervous um system um release of 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 noradrenaline or epinephrine as you noradrenaline as you call it in the us Um, cortisol is a bit of a sort of a slower longer um hormonal response whereby um, and then again, your 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 that's kind of it's a it's a it's a hormonal response that goes into your blood and it, and it you know kind of seeps all through your body and enters your brain and has various again um, roles to play in terms of mobilizing your body and brain in response to threats or challenges or opportunities. And I think it's really important to consider it like that because cortisol isn't released just because we're scared of something or we we once once chased by a saber toothed tiger. Cortisol is, you know, we can have not enough cortisol, which will enable us to not respond appropriately in the right way to perhaps threats, challenges or opportunities. So how that sort of changes through menopause is perhaps less well established because we're not sort of seeing that same um, sort of winding down of, of fertility in our reproductive life that we see in terms of our ovarian hormones. How we, how we, how our cortisol responds um, is, is largely, um, I mean, I'm not going to say stable through the lifespan, but is also um, perhaps influenced by life experiences that we have, um, you know, various aspects of what's happening in our body, the outside world and our thoughts and feelings and experiences and is tightly related to our reproductive health in mm-hmm. that same way. So could, could you speak piggybacking off of that? I mean, because this there there is this notion that you know sort of menopause opens this door for anxiety and depression 
you know, and so where are those coming coming in that door yeah sure well I always like to take what we might call a biopsychosocial approach or I don't like using that language again I I like to think about the let's consider the brain and the nervous system receiving a constant stream of data and information from our biology from our bottom-up body whether that be hormones whether that be the food we eat whether that be our immune system infections you know how well our body is slept and and, and nourished and, and exercised. There's so when you say body story. up, you're saying like our body is causing a reaction in our. Could you just explain that? No, there's a constant stream of data coming from our body into our brain. Yeah, there's a constant yep. conversation, in fact, between our body and our brain. So the brain is receiving a constant stream of data from our biology, but there's also a constant stream of data coming in from the outside world, in particular the people that we're interacting with you know, the, 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 the events that are happening out there, whether they be the news we read or the, 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 the built-up world or the natural world in which we're moving around. And so there's a constant stream of data coming into our brain from the outside world. And then that's all getting coalesced with the bottom-up signalling, the outside-in signalling, and also the top-down signalling, our previous, you know, our experiences, our lived experiences, our memories, our thoughts, our expectations, our mindset, so any particular state we find ourselves in or emotional state, behavior is really a, a kind of a bit of a mix of that bottom up, outside in and top down. So when we're going through menopause, there's a lot of things that are changing. Obviously, we've got that, that change in that hormonal signaling, which you may decide you want to deal with using hormone therapies and kind of sail through the menopause. Perhaps that's not a choice you want to make. Perhaps, you know, lots of women, go, you know, quarter of one in four women will go through menopause without any any symptoms whatsoever really just passes in a blink of an eye about 50 percent of women have some type of symptoms and the hot flash is the most common if they end up disrupting your sleep then that's when we start to see the other effects which tend to come into play these 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 more symptoms of of, of emotional anxiety perhaps one of the shades of I, i think we have to be very careful again when we talk about depression. Depression comes in many shades of blue. So we could be starting to experience depressed mood. And I think, again, we need to be looking at, well, what is the what is the brain? Um, what are these signals that are kind of coming in from the brain, from the bottom-up body, the outside-in world, and our top-down memories and expectations, which are creating an anxious state? Is it solely biological? Is it solely to do with these fluctuating levels in hormones, which perhaps have had a bit of a knock-on effect to impact our sleep? So we're less able to emotionally regulate. Is it perhaps our perception of how we're changing as this kind of, you know, fertile woman who's been able to produce children and has been kind of plump and healthy all the way through our lives and, and plumped up with lovely estrogen? And then suddenly we have this quite negative perception about what the menopause means. Um, are there other things going on in your life? You know, you reach you know, your, your early 50s, you might be at the peak of your career, you've got aging parents, perhaps you've got teenagers who are, you know, going through their adolescence. You've got a whole lot of outside and sort of stressors, threats, challenges and opportunities at play as well. So there's never really one reason why someone might become anxious or one reason why a woman may become depressed. It's really often a mix of these, these many, many things that are going on and it's around spending a bit of time to kind of start to unpack what's happening from the bottom up, the outside and the top down, which has led to this particular state. So, so when you talk about um, hormone therapy and, yes. you know, it is, it is fairly well established. It's pretty, it, it's effective with the hot flashes and yes. maybe there ergo sleep. So it appears to be like 
it should be this 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 almost utopian solution for this stuff, but but yet it's not. Do we do we understand? Well, I, don't, I don't think anyone. Um, if you went and spent some time with a really good woman's health doctor, and you, mm-hmm. you you know you talked through your options, and you talked about everything else that was happening in your life, and you took a really kind of holistic approach, I don't believe anyone will be offering it as a utopian solution. And I don't really right, and I'm not presenting. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't, that, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that that's how it's being discussed these days. That may be the perception of some people. But really, if you are symptomatic and perhaps that kind of the, the thermoregulation issues and the sleep issues kind of are at the core of that, then that's when if, if you don't have perhaps risk factors or some kinds of conditions which preclude you from taking hormone therapy, and really that's up for each individual woman to talk about with a really good, well-trusted healthcare provider, then you have this option. Well, let's let's sort of see if hormone therapy is going to help. It might take a month or two, but mm-hmm. many women do choose to take that, and then they find well, you know, a, a lot of symptoms are starting to improve. And we, I mean, we haven't even really kind of touched on any of the, the sort of the genitourinary symptoms that increase risk of urinary tract infections, right. um, vaginal dryness, all of those types of symptoms which women start experiencing as well, which we know are directly related to that loss of estrogen. So once women sort of start. I guess um, being open to that as an opportunity and start exploring that. Let's let's take it and let's see 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 what's happening. If hormone um, perhaps um, you know that the kind of the roller coastering of hormones was what is underlying a lot of these issues and replacing them helps with symptoms. Well, you're on your way. If it doesn't, if perhaps you know you've dealt with a lot of that, you. You, you're, you're pretty happy that the hormone therapy is working. It's reduced your hot flashes, but perhaps you're still suffering from insomnia or you're still suffering from anxiety. Then we need to take a, you know, a, a more measured approach. And really, that's not necessarily a bad thing because we have very, very good psychological treatments and other approaches to dealing with both insomnia and, and anxiety. And again, it takes a bit of time to work through that with a trusted healthcare provider, but there's plenty of options available. Yeah, there's been some good research I've looked at lately on cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah. in fact, there's some really new interesting research taking a look at the um, using cognitive behavioral therapy as a way of helping women manage hot flashes. And it's not necessarily around re- using hot, you know, using cognitive behavioral therapy to reduce the number of hot flashes, but it really what it does is it's going to reduce women's um, distress associated with them. So, I mean, a lot of women may experience hot flashes and it might not bother them whatsoever. And so, you know, they're experiencing them, but they just kind of shrug and get on with things. It isn't a deal, a big deal. The, the problem always arises when there's distress associated with that. I mean, and, and similarly, you know, some people um, aren't particularly worried at all if they wake up in the middle of the night, they just pick up a book, they, they read their book, they fall back asleep an hour or two later, and it doesn't cause distress in their life. The problem is always when these issues start to cause distress and worry and concern, and that can exacerbate that. But if waking at night or a hot flash doesn't really worry you whatsoever, then that's okay as well. That makes sense. I mean, the, mm. so, so going to the original... Um, topic that 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 caused you that that sent you into this into this project um you know in the book you talk about how estrogen enables sharp thinking by keeping synopsis healthy um and you have this like lovely tree branch analogy i'd love for you to talk talk a bit about that and how it relates to this this cognitive fog that women yeah 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 i think um a lot of people tend to be very um you know have quite negative attitudes towards hormones and it's perhaps not well recognized at all that estrogen 
as what we might call a cognitive enhancer. And we know that it promotes brain health and resilience. Um, in fact, one of the times in life when we're exposed to the greatest dose of estrogen, in fact, about a thousand fold dose of estrogen than we'll receive for the entire rest of our lifespan combined is during pregnancy. Um, and we know that there are now quite dramatic effects on the maternal brain when you go through pregnancy, which are probably likely to be due to changes in this, you know, this sort of enormous dose of estrogen that we receive um, during pregnancy. Um, and um, many, many humans aside, and we, you know, tend to read books on what to expect and we're expecting and feel perhaps a little bit tired and then forgetful. Um, and on a lot of that's around issues to do with thermoregulation. You're kind of running hot when you're pregnant because you've got another human inside that maybe end up disrupting your sleep, which might be causing problems with brain fog. If we take a lot of um, our human experiences out of that and we look at every other um, female mammal in the animal kingdom, um, pregnancy and that enormous dose of estrogen um, actually improves cognition and it helps every single other animal that's ever been studied um, memory improves, attention improves, problem solving improves. Um, women ourselves often have very different lived experiences of that, but I certainly didn't suffer any issues around that during my pregnancy because I never actually heard of things like baby brain or brain fog at all um, during my pregnancy and took on a new job and actually embarked on a brand new career during my pregnancy. So I, mean, I do have my own little anecdotal story there. Um, but certainly, if, again, if we look to the animal kingdom and, and if we look at humans as well, but sometimes remove a little bit of that, the stories that we're telling ourselves around this, if we look at women in, in their 80s and 90s and we compare a large cohort of women in their 80s and 90s who have had a number of pregnancies and raised children versus women who have never had children, um, the women who were mothers have far healthier brains. In fact, their brains look significantly younger than the women hmm. that have never had babies and we believe that that is largely to do with that big dose of estrogen that we receive during a pregnancy and then perhaps also a lot of that kind of up leveling and um, cognitive engagement and intellectual stimulation is involved with with raising children and kind of keeping up with them intellectually and all of the problem solving around that so that's really kind of a uh, a type of environmental enrichment of its own is raising children so certainly if we look at the brain um, it is much harder to do in human women, um, much easier to do in other um, animals that we might study in the research lab. If we look across the course of the menstrual cycle, when estrogen peaks around ovulation, we see that we get flourishing of, 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 of um, dendrites on neurons. So if you think of a little neuron being like a tree with lots of little branches and buds, um, there, is, there is far more capacity for plasticity when we see peaks in estrogen because it kind of promotes that sort of flourishing of the dendrites and they retract again when estrogen levels go down. So certainly all of the studies done in the animal kingdom, human, some human women's experiences aside, um, we, we see promotion of brain health and resilience and cognitive enhancement. It's interesting also if we start to look at studies that have been done of women going through pregnancy. And I'm really, I'm using pregnancy here as an example of a time you've got a massive dose of estrogen. Right. Um, if we look at, look at um, studies that have been done of women, you know, various cognitive tests done of groups of women who are pregnant versus not. In fact, we don't really see any differences whatsoever. Um, what we believe is happening is particularly in the final trimester of pregnancy, when you're running a bit hot, perhaps disrupting sleep architecture, sleep's not, not as good. And so, you're feeling a bit foggier the next day. It's certainly not a direct effect of the hormone itself. The hormone's actually having the opposite effect. Um, 
And obviously, especially, you know, during your first pregnancy, it's a big deal. Your, your, your mind is always kind of half focused on this other little human inside you. Um, so there's a, there's a great degree of sort of a, a distraction and perhaps forced multitasking whereby your, your attention is always kind of elsewhere instead of out in the world, you know, navigating around like you would like you would usually do. So certainly we have evidence if we look down the microscope and we also have evidence if we look at in the animal kingdom, we also have evidence if we look at longitudinal studies through the lifespan that estrogen promotes brain health and resilience. So then what happens in menopause? No, well that's that, that's well that's what we're seeing. We see these fluctuations of hormones starting to change. And we do see, interestingly, that and this research has really only come out in the last week or so for a long time. I just saw it in, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is research that was published by Lisa Moscone um, in Scientific Reports, which is a nature journal in the last week or so, taking a look at what happens during that menopause transition when we're starting to see the reduction in estrogen. And we do start to see a lot of um, structural changes taking place in the brain and other changes around glucose metabolism, which we've known for a long time. Women are far more um, at risk of developing type 2 diabetes after menopause than before because um, hormones help with glucose regulation. We're starting to see um, the structure of women's brains changing slightly and also the, that kind of connectivity, the ability of one area of the brain to talk to another, um, does go through a bit of a transition phase during menopause with this drop in estrogen. But then what we see is after a while, it's almost like our brains kind of wean off the estrogen and sort of start to compensate for a little bit of that lack of, of healthy estrogen in there. Whether or not we see the same... Um, and, and it's still kind of debated if we have a large cohort of women that have started taking hormone therapy when they're symptomatic, not starting when they're in their 60s, 70s or 80s, because that's when the damage starts to be done in terms of risk factors. But if we've got a large cohort of women who are taking hormone therapy versus a large cohort of women that are not. Are we seeing long-term effects on dementia risk reduction? We think that there may be. Um, potential there for dementia risk reduction with hormone therapy, but the data is still a little bit fuzzy at this stage. Um, but yeah, certainly I think we need to start to become more aware of the idea that pregnancy and menopause are both neurological transitions, um, whereby hormones are kind of opening up this sort of change um, in you know, kind of structure and function and plasticity in the brain and um, Certainly in pregnancy, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's, mostly, it's mostly making you a bit better. Yeah, and, and if I'm, uh, I heard you correctly and I read that study correctly and you, you did mention like once, once women are through that transition, the brain does seem to adapt to this new state. Yeah, it's, it sort of seems to start to compensate for a lot of the changes that have taken place. Right. Um, but this... This study seems to indicate that, and I haven't read it in depth because they didn't do a very close comparison of women not taking hormone therapy or not. They just kind of lumped them right. all together. Um, but they did seem to indicate that the, um, the transition occurred regardless of whether women were on hormone therapy or not. But I don't, I'm not entirely sure how well segmented out that has been. I haven't taken a close look at the... Um, the data analysis there but really if we're going to be looking at hormone therapy versus not we need to be looking at you know much larger longer scale you know larger scale studies and longer term studies to be able to sort of start to unpack what's going on there 
So, so it, it's so curious to me, and, and you write about this in the book, that, that the evidence appears clear that hormone therapy does not cause dementia or Alzheimer's disease, yeah. though it may increase the risk if it's begun after this window of time. And yes. I can't wrap my head, pun intended, around that. Like, why, why is that? Why is there this magic, you know, I know it's not magical, but why is there this circumspect window of time in which it seems to be either not a risk or maybe beneficial and then yeah. then not then maybe well, it is a risk. So, this is what we see not just for dementia and alzheimer's disease but for a large number of different um, um, diseases of aging and then certainly this is the data that came out when we look when we kind of turn back to sort of 2001 2002 mm -hmm. when women's health studies were first the data first started emerging from that taking a look at hormone therapy, looking at, at, you know, many hundreds of thousands of women who are taking hormone therapy. Let's take a look to see, is this helping their health? Is it damaging their health? And if we looked at all of the women in one kind of large cohort, it did appear that there were various um, increased risk factors for developing some types of cancer and some types of heart disease um, and perhaps even dementia. However, when that data was, and then about 50% of women globally would rightly concerned and stopped taking hormone therapy because they believed that there was all this increase in all of these different health issues. Right. And that's certainly what that data appeared at first glance to show. However, when it was very, very carefully studied, we started segmenting out different women at different ages and took a look at where was the increased risk. The increased risk was in women who were started on hormone therapy sometimes 10, 20, 30 years after they'd gone through menopause. Women who were started on hormone therapy when they were still going through their perimenopause or within the first year or two after their final period, the risk was not increased. So what we we, we think is this kind of golden window of time in which, you know, the estrogen receptors are still there, they're still active, the body is okay. still used to receiving good doses of estrogen and is still kind of, I suppose, receptive to them in which we can supplement the estrogen back in. But as this Moscone paper seems to indicate that if you just sort of wait, at, you know, perhaps five, 10 years, and it's almost as if the body and the brain kind of wean off estrogen, and we would start to see changes in the numbers of receptors available for estrogen as well. If you then pop estrogen back in or add estrogen back into the system, 10, 20, 30 years after it's weaned off, that's when you start to see estrogen supplementation causing an increased risk. So now... The very, very clear guidance is if you want to start taking hormone therapy, start taking it when you're symptomatic and don't start taking it too many years after your final menopause because that's when the risk goes up. And that's just a recommendation that's based on a clear analysis of the data. Right. And it, when you, when you, that was a beautiful explanation. Like that's actually one of the best explanations I've heard of like why, why this golden window exists. You know, and yeah. and, it's, and that's what we, yeah. we think is the case. We don't know, but certainly right. that we started to get some indications of that um, in studies that were done in, in in the research lab, looking at other animals. Now, the the trick is with every other animal except for humans and a few species of whale. Once you kind of get to the end of your reproductive years, you don't live very long; you tend to die off. We us right. and whales are the only kind of mammals that live for any significant number of years and decades after menopause. Um, but certainly um, if they were to look at menopausal rats and mice, for example, in the lab, 
um, and add estrogen back into them after their bodies had weaned off estrogen, then we saw the increased risk for health. If it was introduced in that window of opportunity, we didn't see the increased risk. And then once we started segmenting out that data very carefully, from these large cohort studies, it became very, very clear. There is a window of safety, and that's when it's fine. You're not going to see any increased risk. You might see, um, and, and to be clear, there is a very, very small increased absolute risk in the development of breast cancer, but it's something like over the course of a year, if you have a 1,000 women, you might have three of them develop breast cancer who are not taking hormone therapy. Four of them on hormone therapy will develop breast cancer. So you're only seeing an extra one woman per 1,000 in the space right. of a year who is going to develop breast cancer. And if you're aware of that and you're keeping an eye on that, um, that again is a risk which perhaps can be managed. And again, that really comes down to um, are you concerned about being the one in a thousand woman who's going to develop breast cancer or do you have other risk factors in play? Um, can you weigh that risk with the benefits that you're going to get from perhaps not having insomnia, anxiety and depression because of poor sleep and hot flashes? If you're going through menopause, and you're not having any symptoms, well, perhaps that's not a risk that you want to take. And that's when you need to sort of sit there with someone and work through that decision-making process because everyone's different and we've all got a different perception of risk. And we've all got yep. a different you know, personal history as well that needs to be thought about quite carefully. Yeah, that's those are all excellent points. Mm -hmm. uh, circling back to sleep for a minute, because mm -hmm. I, I did want to ask, I, I, I didn't know this and, and I found it interesting in your book that you mentioned that sleep is partially regulated by sex hormones in women, but not yep. men. Yeah. Um, what is going on there like why why is why is that sex yeah. difference present <laughs> don't really know. I mean I guess um you know women have got this estrus cycle oh estrus, we don't have an estrus cycle that's what the animals have we've got a menstrual cycle right right so we do have these kind of fluctuations of hormones and so it does appear that and I always think you know we, we tend to fall back on hormones as being the loudest voice in the crowd as if you know hormones are there and they're they're, they're kind of the dominant voice and they're not I always think if we look at the brain and we look at how the brain functions and all of the various signals and, and neurotransmitters and, and what is going on, if you think about it like, you know, a radio station playing classic FM and you've got this orchestra and this, you know, piece that's being played in the radio, all of the hormones and some of the other um, more minor um, neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin, they're the ones everyone's always heard about. All they're doing is kind of turning the volume up and down a little bit or changing the balance or changing the treble or changing the bass. The, most of the work is being done by glutamate and all of the processing, you know, 95% of the processing has kind of been done. Think about that being like the orchestra. And what we've got is we've got all these fluctuations and hormones and various other um, neuromodulators taking place and they're just kind of dialing it up and dialing it down a little bit. Um, what we're seeing with women across the course of the menstrual cycle is that some women, not all women, but some women put, report changes in sleep at different points through their menstrual cycle. Well, we know core body temperature changes across the course of the menstrual cycle. If you've ever taken your body temperature, perhaps as a way of charting your fertility, you'll know that it'll change at different times in the month if you're not on an oral contraceptive pill or pregnant, for example. So, you know, there's lots of kinds of um, signals that we have reaching our brain that are different from the signals that men are having. They've got that kind of, you know, steady drip feed of, of testosterone. Right. Um, we don't. We've got the cyclical changes, um, which are probably having, they're not regulating sleep. They're not like 
the reason why we sleep or why we don't sleep, but there's certainly another little dial that can be twiddled um, mm-hmm. in terms of the, 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 the sort of the, the signaling that's happening within our brain. So when you wrote that, at one point you you mentioned that that this notion that many women may be operating in a mild state of jet lag because they head off to bed yeah. later than their natural bedtime. Yeah. Um, what did what did you mean by that? Yeah, well, so if we take a look at um, really large sleep studies that have been done, and and I think it's always worthwhile pointing out that when we talk about this data, typically we're looking at averages you know, across large data sets of people. And we always want to turn research into me-search and make it entirely... <laughs> I like that term. ...to ourselves and we go, well, I'm this data point here, therefore that invalidates that research because I don't fit into that. We've always got these, you know, aver- we're all we're always just talking about averages when it, when it comes to research. Right. So studies that have been done looking at um, how well people sleep and how well they report that they sleep the next day don't always necessarily match up. So you can get a thousand women and put them in a sleep study, a thousand men, and look to see how long people sleep, spend in deep sleep and an REM sleep and the amount of time they spent to sleep and the amount of time it took them to fall asleep. And we might not necessarily see any differences in that um, objective data between men and women, but often women will report the next day that they don't feel that they slept as well. There'll be more women saying, I didn't really sleep very well versus men and I often think about me and my husband because I sleep I can smash out nine deep solid hours in a row every night I'm like I've never had trouble sleeping I love sleeping I nap um, go to sleep fall asleep stay deeply asleep if I wake up for half an hour in the middle of the night I'm like oh my god there's something happening this is a terrible thing my husband wakes most nights for about an hour or so and has a read doesn't bother him at all objectively speaking my sleep has been far better than his but the next day we're both like yeah I slept right he's like yeah I slept right I was awake for an hour reading but I was fine if I was awake for an hour reading I would be like this is a terrible day I need 10 cups of coffee how am I going to get through I'm going to have to go and have a nap um and that you know if we take mine and my husband's individual experiences we, we often tend to see that between men and women so we're like what's going on a woman just moaning more um, are men just like kind of tougher and don't really kind of mind what what's what's sort of going on there? One of the another type of study that's been done is is taking a look at you know some people are night owls and some people are you know up up in the morning. I really like going to bed early. I'm I will be in bed by nine most mornings, but I'm kind of awake with the sun at six a.m. Got an east facing bedroom and I sit with my curtains open, so when the sun comes up, I'm awake. Um, my husband likes to go to bed much later than me. And there are a lot of, and what we think may be happening is that in, in, a, in a, a kind of a subset of women is that they are going to bed a little bit later than their natural bedtime because there's lots of kind of distractions and other things to do in the evening. You've got Netflix, you've got work, you know, you, you might think, I don't know why, you might have to do some housework or something. That, such things would never occur to me in the evening beyond 8 p.m. <laughs> I'd be rather I'll be tucked up in bed with my book by then. So what we think is there may be a subset of women who are perhaps going to bed later than their natural bedtime, and so they're maybe getting eight hours sleep, but they're kind of slightly out of sync um, with what's going on. Whereas men don't men on average appear to be able to go to bed a little bit later and sleep a bit later. Whereas some women on average may need to be going to bed slightly earlier than what they think. Um, and so that's why we're kind of saying there might be a subset of women who are kind of running with a bit of jet mm-hmm. lag 
Um, I, I personally don't know what those women are doing with their evenings, <laughs> but I have created my life um, with sleep as kind of a linchpin because all of the research I've done and all my personal experience is like sleep for me is like the absolute core of health and well-being. Um, and, and I have very, very, very deliberately created my life to enable me to have my nine hours of, of deep solid sleep every night, going to bed at nine, waking up at sunrise. Is that um, because of the benefits of sleep on the brain, particularly in your area of expertise? Well, my, my personal experience has led me to believe I also grew up in a family where sleep was prioritized. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my mum would always say her favorite time of the day was going to bed. And I never really understood it until, well, now I understand it. I love, I, I love going to bed and I know how I feel the next day if I don't have a good night's sleep. And, I, the, the, and the research is, um, you know, the research is, is, is clearly obvious. Um, and, I, and, I, and I have a strong sense, the research is sort of starting to stack up and to show this, that this is perhaps what is some of the reasons why women are suffering from so-called baby brain or so-called brain fog when they're going through these, these big kind of hormonal and neurological transitions is that sleep is disrupted um, and that that is kind of, you know, where we need to be directing our attention to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pivoting just a little bit, because I, 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 I want to talk about the, the, the perceived and the real differences between the male brain and the female brain, women's brains, men's brains. You know, we hear all of these, um, maybe it's mythology at this point about like how women's brains are different from men's brains. And you, you talk about that a bit in the book. You also talk about, and I've heard this before, how women's brains have been found quote unquote wanting or quote unquote biologically inferior. And that is sometimes weaponized against us. And I would really love for you to ad address this, this sex differences in our gray matter, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting because when I started writing a book about, you know, the neurobiology of pregnancy and periods and perimenopause and the pill, et cetera, I didn't, um, I wasn't expecting so many people's first question to talking about that as the book topic to be about, or what about men, or, or what's the difference between male and female brains. So I kind of had to address that at the beginning. Um, and I mean, I, I, I guess I'm pretty lucky with where I grew up in the world and how I grew up um, I didn't really feel like I grew up with any of these sort of strong gender stereotypes that women can't do this and men can do that. I was brought up and girls can do anything. And, you know, my parents both left school at 15. I'd never met anyone who went to university before in my life, except my GP um, and my dentist. Um, and, you know, and I ended up in Oxford. So I never felt the fact that I was the owner and operator of a female body and brain that I had any um, reason not to be able to do whatever I wanted. I know that the conversation and the narrative has, has changed slightly around that. So I suppose part of that fed into my surprise as to why people wanted to discuss the differences between male and female brains. And I guess I, one analogy is like, let's just think about sort of male and female bodies. There's far more similarities between male and female bodies than there are differences. We've all got arms and legs and hands and fingers and eyes and tongues and, and hair. Some men are a bit hairier than, than women. You know, there are the very, very obvious secondary sex characteristics. Women have breasts, men don't. Men are 
probably bigger and musclier, but women have the same muscles. They're not just kind of as large. And then there's the very clear and obvious difference around our, our, our genitals and our sex organs. But we've still got feet and legs that are attached to them, et cetera, et cetera. And when we take a look at the brain and when we take a look at the structure of the brain, we take a look at how the brain works, we take a look at how various, um, you know, the, the kind of behaviours that emerge from brains, they're kind of similar to the differences between men and women. By and large, a lot of them are pretty, pretty the same. There may just be some slight variations in size, and there are a few very clear differences. But if we were to like sort of peel open, you know, the skulls of 100 men and 100 women and look inside at their brain, we're not going to be able to sort people into a pink side of the room and a blue side of the room <laughs> based on taking a look at their brains. Mm -hmm. We are not. There may be a, a subtle overall difference in size, but that's because brains evolved to drive bodies around the world. And men's bodies on average are, are larger than women's bodies. Right. Um, when we sort of, we've, we've got a kind of, it's like saying uh, um, uh, men's bodies different from women's bodies. Well, we've all got hearts and lungs and all these bits and pieces I've talked about. So similarly, when we start zooming in on the brain, there's no men's brain parts and women's brain parts. There are a few differences. Women have neural circuits controlling ovulation. Men obviously don't. But when we start unpacking, you know, all of these differences, the differences are, of, are often very subtle and they're often quite discreet. So the latest research that's come out saying there's probably about 5% of the brain in terms of structure and function, um, we could say is male versus female, 95% is kind of a mishmash of all these other, you know, things that are, that are, that are pretty similar. Another analogy that's often used is a mosaic you know we've got to kind of break all of the structures and functions of the brain down um, and we have some parts which are kind of pink for girls and some parts which are blue for boys but by and large most people's brains are this kind of mosaic of you know mauve and purple and lilac and navy blue and all these kinds of shades of and of pink and purple in between um, I guess when people also come at this, they're often coming at it from the perspective of, can neuroscience support my gender stereotype about women being better at multitasking and men not? And they're asking for either that to be validated or that to be denied. And as a scientist, you've got to say, well, what is the specific difference that you are interested in exploring? Is it something that we can explore through a neuroscience lens? Well, let's define it very, very carefully and take a look. And often what we end up finding out is much like very many aspects of, of humans is that we have these big, broad kind of average differences. Um, and, and when it comes to comparing males versus females, there's mostly a lot of overlap. And often the, the difference between the differences is very, very tiny or non-existent whatsoever. Um, so neuroscience, unfortunately, doesn't support a lot of these, these gender stereotypes that people are wanting it to do. Um, that's not to say that there aren't some differences in there. Um, but often the differences don't necessarily always play out in terms of behaviours. I mean, what's, you know, and, and a lot of the behaviours we might think about are, you know, typically quite stereotypical that we're, that, that we're taking a look at rather than, you know, most of them are quite human behaviours when it comes down to it. You also mentioned in that same section of the book that, that there historically has been sort of a dearth of research on women in in mm. in neurobiology in your field I mean, in uh, frankly all fields all medical fields um mm. you know you talk about the 2014 review 
that was aptly titled 50 Years of Hormonal Contraception, Time to Find Out What It Does to the Brain. And I just laughed out loud because I was like, well, well, of course. It is really Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, but you know, what really surprised me is that you mentioned that there is a lack of female representation in preclinical research. And that's something that I never even thought about. Like, I kind of understand like why, you know, women, humans, but why even? Yeah. And there's good reasons for that. And there's some bad reasons for that. And I think there's not always been this agenda to sideline females. I mean, I think when looking back on it, may appear that that was the agenda but I don't necessarily think that's always been the agenda when you're when you're looking at studies that have been done and certainly in cases and and research now where where biological sex matters um we are starting to realize that we've got to you know take a look at using male and female typically animals when we're looking at preclinical studies um and starting to introduce that as a variable Typically what scientists want to do is we want to reduce the kind of the number of variables that are in play so we can make some really, really kind of clear, um, you know, take, take a really clear look at, you know, what's going on in terms of physiology or anatomy or biochemistry, et cetera, et cetera. And removing females as one variable from that always seemed, I suppose, to make a lot of sense. Um, down the track, perhaps that's now started to make less sense when we're starting to realise that, you know, women's health issues are actually quite important. Women are not a niche. Um, and you know, there are some factors that we need to start realizing it is you know it is female you know ha- having a, a female body and brain and hormones etc and everything that goes on with that is a variable that now needs to be considered luckily that you know we're starting to recognize that there's not some like kind of patriarchal agenda out there to keep on excluding you know females from preclinical research now in fact it's now being mandated um, I believe the NIH in the US has now mandated that the NIH funded research has to include male and female as a, as a variable. A lot of research journals now are requiring that as part of their publication process. So, you know, once we've got the awareness, we do start to see positive change. So and I think that that's a, that's a really good thing. Um, that, may, that does not mean, you know, I mean, we're looking at research that was done back in the 50s and 60s. It was a different world back then, right? Um, we can be angry about that or we can go, well, there's lots of opportunities for new research and, and findings to be done. So let's sort of crack on with it. And um, I'm, I'm, I guess I come from more of that, <laughs> that, that, that sort of breed of feminism of let's kind of crack on with it and see what we can do now instead of worrying too much about what wasn't done in the past. To me, it doesn't really seem very um, proactive. Um, but I think it's really interesting that there is this whole kind of gap that's there <laughs> um, I'm guys kind of really interested to see what happens next um, within that space and certainly you know since that paper was published about 50 years of the oral contraceptive pill time to find out what it does to the brain you know some really interesting research is coming out obviously we know that the pill interacts with the brain because the brain ovarian conversation is essentially what fertility is all about and putting in the synthetic estrogen um, is almost sending a signal to the brain not to tell the brain tell the ovaries to ovulate. So, I mean, we know we know that it, that the hormones interact with the brain because that's how you disrupt fertility with the oral contraceptive pill. What impact is that having on the structure of brains and on the function of brains? And there's now some really interesting research which is starting to emerge around that. It's not. Um, I think many the, the pill has got a bit of a bad rap recently. Um, 
But certainly um, the really large cohort studies that have been done on that um, are starting to say there is a subset of women who perhaps are vulnerable to um, altering their hormones in that way that it has a negative outcome. But by and large, for the majority of women, it's not having a negative impact. Um, and there does again appear to be this kind of window of vulnerability whereby if um, young adolescents have started on the oral contraceptive pill quite early, it's almost as while their bodies are weaning on to estrogen and they're kind of getting used to functioning with estrogen, if the pill has started quite young, then we're seeing more disruptions in terms of brain changes to brain structure, changes to brain function, vulnerability to mental health. But if women are starting to take the pill when they're sort of 20, 25, we're not seeing that same vulnerability that we're seeing in girls of, say, 12, 13, 14. So, you know, the research is starting to emerge, which I think is really exciting. And um, I think for me, it's really, really, really important that we try and report and discuss this research dispassionately because there are millions of women globally whose lives have been transformed, generations of women whose lives have been transformed in positive ways by the pill. It's got a bit of a bad rap because there are some women who are more susceptible, susceptible to developmental health issues when they're on, but can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really keen on this research being reported passionately almost without that like layer of emotion and fear and concern um, because there's a lot of good <laughs> um, and we need to just again sim similarly with HRT it's so easy to shame and dismiss women's reproductive choices let's give let's give people the information without all of the kind of emotional baggage involved with it right and and one hormone that doesn't get talked about a lot in this sphere is testosterone and I'm curious in women and especially menopausal women, I mean, everything kind of goes into the flat line. What is there anything we should know about testosterone and how is that playing into these? Yeah, it's, that's, that's really interesting. The research in that space is quite new. And obviously women, we do produce androgens or we do produce testosterone. Curiously, um, a lot of the testosterone that enters our brains of men and, and women gets converted into estrogen before it acts. So even in men, um, testosterone in their brain gets aromatized into or, or transformed enzymatically into estrogen where it then has its action which I think is one of mother nature's great jokes um, so you know testosterone we, we don't really understand as much about the menopausal changes associated with testosterone um, and whether we should be supplementing with that for that or, or, or not that research is still pretty early days and reasonably inconclusive Gotcha. So let, let's, let's wrap up a bit with your TEDx talk that I watched on napping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm all about, as I say, sleep is the linchpin. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I think you, you referred to it at, and, and you were quoting someone else, if I remember correctly, 20 minutes of blissful oblivion can restore your yeah. natural forces. I mean, it was an amazing statement. Um, given all that we have talked about here, how beneficial can that can napping be to this audience? Yeah. Well, for me, I've kind of gone even beyond talking about napping. I talk about strategic napping because there's okay. feeling tired and sleeping for two hours in the afternoon. You know, perhaps you're not very well or you're old or whatever. You, you, you're not re well rested. There's, there's those kind of long afternoon naps. And then there's the short strategic nap, which 
Um, I have a very informal data set that I've been gathering over time of people who also strategically nap similarly to me, whereby you get to around 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. And it doesn't matter whether you've eaten carbs for lunch or not, or you sleep, you, you smash out nine hours of deep, solid sleep like I do every night, kind of reach a bit of a dip in your circadian rhythm where there's that build up in sleep drive. And for years I used to fight it and I'd spend, you know, an hour or two feeling kind of like I was trying to fight off the sleep. And as I've got older and, you know, and I've now created a business and a, and a lifestyle whereby I can nap if I really want, I don't need to ask anyone for permission. Um, I've started to strategically nap, which means taking, when that urge to sleep strikes, I let myself fall asleep. If, you know, obviously not if I'm driving a car or I'm, giving a talk right but right I, of course I lie down on the sofa the dog usually sits alongside me and I'll set my alarm for 23 minutes on my phone people say how do you wake up I just use an iPhone <laughs> set it for 23 minutes because I know it'll take me a minute or two to drop off and I'll sleep for 20 minutes and then I wake up the key here is that I haven't fallen into deep wave sleep I'm still in the early stages of sleep but essentially what that does from a sort of a neural biochemical level is it sort of reduces all of the levels of a, a, a molecule called adenosine, which builds up and which kind of starts to make you feel sleepy. So it kind of clears that away within that 20 minutes. So you get the benefits of having it had a longer sleep without the knock-on negative effects. Because if you fall into deep wave sleep in the afternoon, then the, the benefits physiologically and you know, neurologically and not, and not quite as good. And that can disrupt your sleep later that night. So if I have a short afternoon nap, I, I don't feel cranky. I don't feel like I'm fighting off this urge to sleep, which made me annoyed. Um, we have tons of great evidence that it improves memory consolidation and, and cognitive skills. You're far more likely to remember what you learned in the morning after a nap than if you don't have a nap. And so you've got your emotional regulation, your memory skills, and there's also all these really wonderful knock-on effects around kind of problem solving and creativity. And a lot of the kind of the great minds and the great thinkers of the past used to use, you know, a daily walk and an afternoon nap as a way of kind of problem solving and sort of freeing up your kind of attentive cognitive mind to almost kind of, you know, go back in itself and, and, and creatively problem solve. And um, certainly it, can be used for that and what's really interesting that since I did my TED talk and I start talking about napping and I meet someone else who is a strategic napper not just someone who sleeps in the afternoon but is, has a strategic system for a short afternoon nap to resolve that sleepy feeling I say so how do you sleep at night I've perhaps asked 30 or 40 people this but but from one person they have said it like a log and I believe that this ability to indulge your neurobiology to just sort of, you know, just melt into that sleep forms a lot of strong positive associations with sleep. So we also all go to bed at night, strategic nappers going to sleep again. And there's a lot of positivity. We like to sleep and we let ourselves sleep. People who have a lot of sleep issues don't tend to have that same like dissolving and melting into the blissful oblivion that strategic nappers have kind of fostered. Um, so that's kind of, you know, a bit of a, an anecdotal finding that I have discovered since giving my TED talk was about five years ago now. That makes, that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm. So, so to, to wrap up, I, you know, in your book, you talk about a, a lot of the, 
of the tried and true things that we know are good for your brain, you know, exercise, mm-hmm. eat real food, not too much, mostly plants, use your mind, reduce yeah. stress, get, get neat, non-exercise activity, you know, regular, just move your body throughout the day, find yeah. connection and meaning and purpose. You know, that, I think that's all good advice for everything, you know, I mean, yeah. our, our, yeah, yeah. our mind. Nothing yeah. you understand there. Yeah, our mind and our body. Is, is there any, um, are there any final words that you have for, for women in this audience? I mean, a lot of them, you know, a lot of them do worry about um, dementia and Alzheimer's and, and, and losing yeah. their mind, so to speak. And um, yeah. 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 Look, I think I certainly went into writing this book. Um, and when people ask me about the book, they're approaching it from this point of view that hormones are the loudest voice in the crowd. Um, hormones, 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 and they are almost kind of like they're the music being played by the radio instead of one of the many hundreds of little knobs that you can twiddle and tweak. Um, and when I started doing the research for the book, a very different method sort of started to emerge from the research and, and all these different points in the lifespan, whether it be infancy, whether it be kids going through puberty, boys and girls, whether it be pregnancy, early motherhood, menopause and old age. And that was that hormones were never the loudest voice in the crowd. The loudest voice in the crowd was actually the crowd. It was other people. It was that outside and influence of social connection. Mm. What a baby needs more than anything, obviously, it has to be, a baby has to be fed and changed and kept warm and safe. But its body and its physiology, it's it's regulated by another human. It needs, you know, and it form and we understand now how important that attachment in those early years of life is. Kids going through puberty. The, the 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 most inf- the, the greatest influence on you know that successful transition there into high school and surviving adolescence is, is their friendship groups and sometimes just the friendship of one other close person interestingly the, the brain changes that we see that take place during pregnancy involve social cognition theory of mind and empathy in the maternal brain what's the greatest predictor of outcome in terms of the early years of motherhood is that having that like village, that tribe of support around. Same for menopause. Women who feel well socially supported when they're going through menopause have reduced levels of stress and reduced symptomology. And what do we see once we get to the kind of the end, the end of life? What do we see you know, when people are isolated and lonely in aged care? That is the greatest single indicator of mortality. Um, it's, it's the other people that are the actual strongest loudest voice in the crowd we've got these social brain brains and we're social beings and it didn't matter at which point in the lifespan I looked at and which study I was looking at hormones were kind of way in the back (laughs) it was and and we and and I think that's great because you know social connections and we we haven't we learned that in the last year and a half of the pandemic we have agency over that we can do something about that we can't we can't you know just but a menstrual cycle every month, well, that's kind of what you've got, you know. You can't necessarily tweak that and, and have as much agency over that as you can over, you know, forming strong social architecture around yourself. Um, so I wish people would kind of, there's a lot of, you know, we spend so much time looking inside ourselves at our own ovaries. Um, I don't think that's where the answers are. <laughs> we need to be flipping it around and looking outside and to, you know who are the other people out there that we can interact with and realize that that, that is that is the strongest um, data stream coming in makes a difference hit play not pause is proud to be sponsored by noon hydration in 2021 
I have been a huge fan of Noon for well over a decade. They have products for immunity, recovery, getting a good night's rest, and I absolutely swear by their Podium series, which include branched-chain amino acids that are super important for women during and after menopause. So show your support and head over to NoonLife.com. That's Noon, N-U-U-N, life, one word. And use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, again, one word, with a capital F and a capital M, for 30%, yes, 30% off of all of Noon's amazing products. Again, NoonLife.com, use the code FEISTYMENOPAUSE, with a capital F and a capital M, and get 30% off of anything you want. Check it out. Well, that's our show. Join me next week when I sit down with registered dietitian and Hashimoto's warrior, Ingrid Anderson. We talked all about thyroid health and menopause, and I learned a ton during this one, and I'm confident you will as well. So come on back next week for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. (laughs) 